I can't avoid this morning thinking how fortunate this church is to have Bill Sullivan. You know, not only basic, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, the kids' memory of Scripture, wonderful, and how Bill loves the kids. But you know, I've helped a lot of elderships be established around the nation. And one reason many elderships fail is because they do not have someone in the role of facilitator. Every elders meeting needs a facilitator, someone to bring the agenda, to take the notes, and uh, the funnel through which it all comes. Bill fulfills that role so beautifully. He's certainly an elder, a shepherd. He has a heart for people, but Bill, thank you for being who you are and the way you serve us as a church. I also want to... uh, Congratulate BASIC. You know, years ago, Kenny Stafford started BASIC, Brothers and Sisters in Christ. After that was Bill Scott and his wife. Others through the years have led. Jim Grinnell did a beautiful job of leading for many, many years. And now we have the failures, and what a couple that is. Uh, You know, Bob and Shirley had them come and do yard work, I think it was last week. And as I was visiting with Bob and Shirley in our usual monthly, uh, weekly time together, Shirley just began raving on how hard the basic kids worked. And, of course, being a lady, she especially noticed how hard the girls worked. And, of course, they aren't girls anymore, are they? They're young ladies. It's amazing to me how we see these kids grow up. Uh, Daniel Doe used to, we, I would hug him every Sunday and pick him up and say, someday you can pick me up. And overnight, I realized I had to look up to him instead of his looking down to me. And then where on earth did that deep voice come from? So, you know, they grow up. And my, how fortunate we are in this church to have the young men and women in basic, the model they are, I think, to young people anywhere in the world if they just... Take a look at our young people. Don't we have a lot to be thankful for in this church? So thankful. We could go Sunday, I believe it was, uh, yes, after uh, Persecuted Church Sunday. I was so moved by that. And really struggling emotionally with the fact that I am so blessed. And my life is so easy. And there are so many in the world where that isn't true at all. I thought of Martin Niemöller. Martin Niemöller was a submarine officer in World War I in the German Navy. And after that war, the Germans were ordered to turn over all their submarines to the British. He was such a patriotic German, he refused. And so they kicked him out of the Navy. (laughs) Through the years, he went through a lot of experiences. Always a very loyal German. And when Adolf Hitler came to power, he thought, finally, Germany will be what it really can be. But then things happened. (laughs) He said, when they arrested the communists, I didn't say anything because I'm not a communist. When they arrested the trade unionists, I said nothing because... I'm not a trade unionist. When they arrested the Jews, I said nothing because I'm not a Jew. 
But when they arrested me, there was no one left to speak. And I've pondered how long or what should we do as a nation when we as Christians see the path our country is falling. I was wrestling with things like that and somewhat depressed and thought, well, I'll play my horn. Uh, Where should I go? Should I just stay at home and play? No. Perhaps go to Veterans Park and Jinx. I like to sit there because their shelters have metal roofs and wonderful resonance. Perhaps go to the park at 91st and Riverside. I love their little gazebo. And oh, go to your favorite spot in Woodward Park. <laughs> so I went to Woodward Park. And I'll tell you, you can hardly find a place to park in Woodward Park. <laughs> it was a beautiful day. <laughs> Finally, a parking slot opened, and I was surprised in spite of all the people that were there, my favorite bench was empty. And so I went to that bench, and I began to pray to God and play songs, I believe, hopefully, to his glory. Two little boys came up, five and six years old. One woman came by with a dog. And then I sensed over my right shoulder someone, and I looked, and it was a man and a woman. Both had on yellow puff vests. They had been reading together, a father and a daughter. He said, I brought my daughter to the Lord about two years ago. She'd been a businesswoman out in the world, much into sin. We talked about that. I said, you know, Hebrews talks about the deceitful of sin. Sin promises more that it can ever deliver. She said, I've learned that. That morning, she, they said, we read the Bible, study together every day, father and daughter. That morning, they had read Deuteronomy 27, 28, and 29. And we talked about all the things that God was doing to Israel because they didn't repent. How long for America? Then she said this. As I was praying this morning, God said to me, go to the park and follow the music. (laughs) And she came to the park and heard the clarinet and followed the music, and we had an hour-long discussion of wonderful spiritual and scriptural matters. I pondered that as I wondered, is that what God wants me to talk about today? I began to think of the many times in my life when God has directed me when I have not even been seeking direction. One of those was when we started the conclave. I was uh, in the cabin on the mountain outside of Bailey, Colorado. Remember, you used to have Tulsa Bible Seminary, Tuesday, Thursday nights, had about 120 students. I taught Greek, hermeneutics, homiletics, one semester, church history. And I was preparing my lectures for the fall. And totally out of the blue, God began bringing to mind church leaders around the nation who had contacted me wanting to learn about the New Testament church. And then God said to me, have a gathering next May, invite everyone that has ever said that to you. This will not be a place where men of God come to listen to an expert, but where men of God come together to mutually pursue truth. And then of all things, call it a conclave. Now that's what the Catholics do when they're picking the Pope. 
I came back to Chuck and Bill, and I said, here's what God said to me on that mountain. They said, let's do it. And so we had the first one here in 1987. For 32 years, church leaders around the nation gathered together to mutually encourage one another to study. And that all came because God spoke to me when I wasn't preparing at all to listen to God on a mountain in Colorado. As I pondered these things in prayer Wednesday morning, God brought to mind probably the most important time in history, one of the most important times at least, when the Holy Spirit spoke and led someone. And that was the way in which Jesus began his ministry. And then immediately came to mind Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Lay aside all the sin that so easily besets us. And let us run with diligence the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, who because of the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That word that is rendered looking unto Jesus is horao. It means to focus so intensely on something that you're not aware of anything else. And I sense God saying, that's your word for Sunday. The episode actually began about 31 years before. There was an old priest named Zacharias. He was of the course of Abiah, the various courses rotated as to when they served in the temple. And so was Zechariah's turn, and he was an old man. He had a wife named Elizabeth. They'd been childless all their life. Now she was well past menopause. Childbearing was certainly not an option. Besides that, they were too old even to try. And as he was fulfilling his duties, ministering at the altar of incense, suddenly an angel appeared, and he was filled with fear. And the angel said, you and your wife are going to have a son. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. Not only that, he's going to go forth in the spirit of Elijah calling the people to make a people ready for the Lord, the forerunner of the Messiah. Zachariah said, oh, I'm too old. My wife's too old. How am I going to believe that? The angel said, since you're doubting, you're going to be dumb and unable to speak till the day the boy is born. Indeed, it was true. Now, Elizabeth, indeed, they went ahead and had the conjugal act. No doubt it was a labor for them. But after Elizabeth had reached her six months of pregnancy, far to the north, in the very small village of Nazareth in Galilee, there was a virgin engaged to be married, but still a virgin. And an angel appeared to her, Gabriel, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, and blessed art thou in the fruit of thy womb. 
And she immediately, what do you mean? <laughs> I'm still a virgin. I don't know any man. The Holy Ghost shall come upon you and overshadow you. And you know the story. And then the angel said, now, it's interesting to know the relationship between Elizabeth and Mary. The Greek word means female relative. Some of our versions translate it cousin. I've seen some that say aunt. We don't really know, but they were, they had consanguinity. They were blood relatives. She's six months pregnant. And Mary, now having the embryonic Jesus in her womb, traveled from that far north village in Galilee down to Judea to visit the home of Zacharias and Elizabeth. And as soon as she walked in the house, the babe in Elizabeth's womb leapt. The Holy Spirit was already active. And thus began the life of John. John, as the prophecy had said, would drink either oil or, or rather of wine or anything alcoholic. He'd live in the desert for a while, the wilderness, dressed in rough clothing. And suddenly he showed up at the Jordan River and began preaching. Now, this is a kind of a remote area. Who was he talking to? I don't know. But people started to come. And they began to hear his word, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And people came to repent, and he immersed them, and they came out of the water with a changed life. Now, here's an interesting thing. John was the first person to ever immerse anyone. Prior to that time, people had dipped themselves. Remember Naaman the leper who came to the prophet and he said, go dip yourselves seven times in the Jordan River. He said, man, we got better rivers back home. No good in this one. He dipped himself seven times. In Qumram, where probably the Essenes, that was their place, they had all kinds of pools where they dipped themselves to purify themselves. Prior to John, everyone dipped themselves. He is the first one who ever immersed anybody. And that was done as the, pro, as the angel had said to Zechariah, to prepare a people for the coming of the Messiah, to prepare a people, make them ready, prepared for the Lord. <laughs> he was a pretty stout fellow in his preaching, too. Some One day some Sadducees and Pharisees showed up following the crowd. Oh, it's a religious thing to do. He said, who told you, you brood of vipers, to come to me? <laughs> and then he told them to repent and then bring forth fruits unto repent. In other words, don't just go through an act and let me dip you. But when you come out, let me see a different life than the one you manifested before. And then one day Jesus showed up. Now, John later told his disciples when he came, I didn't know who he was. And yet when he came to be immersed of John, John said, why do you come to me? <laughs> I need to be immersed of you. Evidently, the Holy Spirit prophetically had given him revelation as to who Jesus was. 
And Jesus said, Suffer to be so to fulfill all righteousness. And so John immersed him. Now it's interesting that later Jesus' early ministry was he entered into the ministry of John. And his disciples said Jesus at the time immersed more people than John, but said Jesus didn't do any of it. His disciples were doing it. So he entered into the ministry of John until the crucifixion. But we have three accounts of what happened next. One is in Luke chapter 4, the closing two verses of three part of it. Matthew chapter 4. And then Mark also gives us just a very brief touch. Mark 1, just two verses, summarizes it. But Matthew and Luke describe in detail. And it's interesting, they agree in all details except two. Matthew says that after Jesus was raised from the water and the dove, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove rested on him, the heavens opened and a voice said, this is my beloved son. <laughs> Luke says when it happened, he said, you are my beloved son. <laughs> Small detail. Also, they both present the very first temptation, turning stones into bread. But then they reverse the order of the next two. But other than that, their details are identical. So those details are not important. But what really did happen? Luke says Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led into the wilderness. Matthew just says the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness. Again, the word wilderness, the Greek word is eremos. Eremos can mean a desert. It can mean a wilderness. It just means some place where there's no human habitation. So we don't know where this really took place. Matthew Henry says probably on Mount Sinai. That's silly. You'd have to travel through many nations to walk to get there. But somewhere far away from human habitation, Jesus, for 40 days and 40 nights, fasted. I don't know how many of you have ever fasted for a length of time. Various times in my life, I've fasted five days, nothing but water. First three days are a challenge. After that, it gets easier. But 40 days and 40 nights is supernatural. You can't do that humanly. The only other time we've read of that was Moses on the mountain, 40 days and 40 nights. But after that time, Jesus was hungry. Now, James says, don't look to God and say you made me sin. But he said, sin happens when the lust we have within us gives birth to sin. <laughs> in other words, we've mentioned this before, it's as if in every one of us we have various ova. And Satan picks one of those ovum, picks an ovum and says, ah, here's a man who's struggles with lust. I'm going to put him in some place where a scantily clad woman will walk by and suddenly that will fertilize that ovum and it'll give birth to sin, whatever. So Satan looks for opportunities to fertilize the ovum, the various ova we have within us in order to cause us to sin. But Jesus didn't have any of those. Perfect. No sinful ovum. And so Satan realized he's going to have to personally 
do this. And so here Jesus is in the wilderness, having fasted 40 days and 40 nights and hungry, and Satan shows up. If you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. The Greek word really is loaf. When I was a boy, we didn't have the toys that kids have today. There was no television. Didn't have these cell phones and other stuff to carry around. (laughs) No MP3s, no CDs, no tapes. Actually, LPs didn't exist yet. Still had records. And we made a lot of our toys. Now, one toy we boys made was a sword, and you'd get a piece of wood, a one-by-four, perhaps a one-by-two, but usually a one-by-four, and get out your pocket knife and for several days carve yourself a sword. I made one that uh, we had a, a brass ashtray that for some reason had a hole in it. I think once it had been on a pedestal and that was left. So I put that on the handle as my hasp to... Uh, Make a good sword. Paint it gold, I remember. And so we boys would have sword fights. We'd go to the picture shows on Saturday. Saturday morning there's always kids shows. It cost 25 cents for me a nickel to ride the bus to town, 10 cents to get in, 5 cents for a Coke, and 5 cents to ride the bus home. So 25 cents. So we boys would go see those. And we'd see all these exciting adventure stories. I remember the Mark of Zorro uh, Lash LaRue, others uh, learned to lose them. We, we modeled them during the week, learned to use a bullwhip and shoot bows and arrows like Robin Hood and so on, but sword fights. And you know, when you're in a sword fight, you want to do your best to think faster than your enemy and have quicker reflexes. For instance, if an enemy is going to come at you, you want to quickly, almost without thinking, parry. If he's going to hack, parry. Parrying is very important in deflecting the effort of your enemy to hack you up with a sword. Jesus demonstrated great skill in parrying. Remember the Apostle Paul describing the Christian armor, said the helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, and then he said the shield of faith, The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So when the angel made his thrust, (laughs) if you be the Son of God, turn these stones into a loaf of bread. Jesus adroitly parried, of all things, with a quotation from Deuteronomy. (laughs) That's not one we'd normally think of, would it? And yet, in every case today, every case, he used Deuteronomy. You know, Deuteronomy is an interesting book. It really is Moses' valedictory address. After they'd come to the edge of the promised land, and God had said, because you sinned in turning the stone, bringing water out of the stone, you can't enter the promised land. And so, the beginning of Deuteronomy, we see Moses getting ready and addressing the people. And that long book that we call Deuteronomy is Moses' speech. Can you imagine one speaking that long? Since it was his speech, I wondered, was there Joshua or somebody taking notes and writing it out? Certainly toward the end, something like that, because it describes his going to the mountain and looking over the promised land and dying. But it's interesting 
The sword that Jesus pulled out to parry Satan's thrust was Deuteronomy. It is written, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Well, Jesus deflected that thrust. What happened next is is interesting. Now, remember, you know, one thing that is a problem for a lot of people, they just can't leave something alone that we don't understand. But there's so much we don't understand. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to God. The things that have been revealed revealed to the sons of Jacob so they can obey them. Whatever we need to know to obey God, he's revealed. The rest we need to be content with saying, I just can't quite, with my human mind, logically put it all together and be satisfied with that. So the next temptation, and we wonder, how did he do this? Satan took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. Now you notice that first temptation, if you be the Son of God, kind of tempting, testing, doubting. This time... If you're the son of God, jump off. It is written, he'll bear you up with angels' wings, lest you dash your foot against a stone. See, Jesus had used scripture to parry the thrust. Satan now was using scriptures. He quoted Psalm 91. (laughs) Okay, you use use the scripture. I'm going to use some. But Jesus parried his thrust. It is written, thou shalt not tempt The Lord thy God, quoting Deuteronomy of all things. So again, the devil had failed. One more time, he took him to a high mountain. We wonder where this was. We don't know. And he had him pass pass before him. We wonder how did this happen. Vision, perhaps. The, The Greek says all the inhabited part of the world. Hear all these kingdoms, all their glory. Why do you want to go to the cross? You know that's what you came to do, but why do you want to do that? Listen, you can have all of this if you'll just bow down and worship me because it's mine and I can give it to whoever I want to. And Jesus parried using the sword of the Spirit. It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only. Shalt thou serve? Satan gave up. (laughs) He just couldn't wield the sword the way Jesus did. Even when he twisted scripture. Bye, brother and sister. We need to recognize when, when he said, turn the stones into bread. What would have been wrong with that? Jesus, with just a few loaves and fishes, fed 5,000 people, later 4,000. He turned water into wine. What would have been wrong with turning those stones into bread? We could speculate, but one certain reason was the person who made the suggestion. The devil. It's important that we do our best to learn to recognize the voice of God. As that contrasted with our own thoughts. And perhaps even a suggestion that Satan is making to us from someone else. In a way, that kind of comes from experience, doesn't it? 
But more importantly, it comes from knowing the word and testing everything by the word. You see, looking unto Jesus, how did he do it? He used the sword of the spirit. I tell you, wasn't it something to hear Lillian Feathers recite this morning? Aren't we thankful for Bible Bowl that boys and girls are putting this deep in their heart and for the rest of their lives they're going to have that sword available that they can parry the thrust of the enemy. They're getting equipped. Praise be to God. They're equipped. We need to recognize those voices when they come. It's so sad to me to see today that we have ministries that have so departed from the authority of the word, except they want to use it. One today that is so popular, capturing especially many of the young adults. I'll not give the name, but I'll tell you about it. This particular ministry says that Jesus, when he was in the earth, just functioned like a human And he could not do anything without the Holy Spirit. And you and I can have the Holy Spirit do everything he did. And he said, he wrote, Jesus himself said, I can do nothing. And we can have that same anointing and do what he did. Sad to say that person did not read the rest of the passage. Jesus said, I can do nothing except I see the Father do it. Then I do it. I see the Father raising the dead, then I raise the dead. You tell me Jesus was just a human and I can have the same anointing he has, horse feathers. It just is not true. We have to test, have to test these various exciting ministries that suddenly come along. And ask, do they, that particular ministry, there are some people associated with it now do what they call grave sucking. You go out and lay on the grave of some anointed person. I saw a picture of one of uh, C.S. Lewis. And you suck the anointing out so you can have the anointing. The anointing is everything. Rather than the Lordship of God. How tragic. So, the daughter-in-law of this man giving a talk on the Holy Spirit to a group of women she had on blue jeans, no, uh, blue sweats, sitting in a chair. Oh, the Holy Spirit, he's so funny, he's tricky. And then she raised her left leg. He's blue, like her britches. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. How sad. The point being, we need to be adept at using the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And Jesus modeled for us. That's the way to do it. Develop skill. Learn to parry the thrusts of the enemy. Notice it said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There was an honor waiting for him as he ran the race and we're urged, Horao, look at him. Forget everything else. Focus on him. And when we do, 
And when we run the race as he did, there's an honor waiting for us. James 1, 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, here's the beautiful part, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord promised to those who love him. Writing to the seven letters of the seven churches of Asia, the religious Jesus Christ had this spoken through John. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tested. You'll have tribulation ten days, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Second Timothy 4, Paul writing about himself. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. My brother, my sister, there's a crown of life waiting for us. <laughs> If we remain faithful and victorious, and one way to remain faithful and victorious is develop skill in using the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. May the Lord's blessing rest upon you.